Good afternoon and welcome to today's webinar. Today we're going to talk about uh, coronavirus, medical marijuana, and medical provider claims. And my goal today was sort of break things up a little bit and talk about things that are new or different. So welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, and we're going to depart a little bit from our normally scheduled um, uh, topics and we're going to talk about stuff that's new or stuff where the case law has recently changed or the statute has changed. So thanks for jumping in and we're going to have some fun today. As you can see, I'm wearing a shiny piece of bling and I hope you can see it. I'm really proud of this. This is our uh, mock trial pin that we award to everyone who participates in our mock trial here at Lois Law Firm. We are deep into our mock trial season. It begins in April. It ends in September. Uh, we have about 25 or 30 people out of the firm participating, and that's paralegals and attorneys and even legal assistants in our mock trial program. It's a lot of fun. If you're ever here on the third Friday of the month and stop by, if you do, you can watch our attorneys do mock trials, and we do paralegals versus attorneys and attorneys versus paralegals. It's just a lot of fun, uh, and we're really excited about this program this year. Uh, today, I'm going to talk about uh, some different things. Uh, we're going to talk about jurisdictional standards of proof in coronavirus cases. There's a lot of confusion about whether these cases can be defended or not in New Jersey. I'm going to talk about the new case law on medicinal marijuana, and I'm going to end up talking about the uh, way we're now handling medical provider claims and how the changes in the statute and the resulting case law has now affected the defense of those matters. So these are three uh, pretty up-to-the-minute topics that we're going to cover today in New Jersey Workers' Comp. But uh, don't feel limited by that. If you have a question about anything, I will answer your question live. So definitely put it into uh, the question bar and I will answer as many questions as I possibly can today. All right. So if you're not sure how to use the live questions and answers, you just type your question into that bar. Uh, it'll pop up over here at the end. I will always say your first name. I will read your question out loud so that everybody uh, playing along at home uh, can get the benefit of your question, and then I will answer your question live. So if you have any questions about these topics, please bring them out today, and I'll try to answer as many as I can. All right, we'll talk about coronavirus really quickly. I just want to do a couple quick reminders because I'm getting a lot of questions still about what is compensable, what is not compensable. I remember New Jersey now has a rebuttable presumption of compensability. A couple things, um, vaccinations have now become an issue where people are having reactions to the vaccination and then claiming that now they have a workers' compensation benefit. Unless the employer is requiring that vaccination, that's not gonna be a compensable injury. And out of my, we have over 70 people that work here, um, well more than half of us. I think last count, it was something like 70% of everyone at Lois Law Firm has been vaccinated. And we've heard the stories and I've seen the stories, obviously I'm vaccinated myself, uh, that you know the day after your first shot and sometimes the day after your second shot, people feel tired, they feel a little fluey, they feel a little sick uh, and yeah, okay. Uh, that's happening, uh, that would not be give rise to a compensable claim. Uh, in general, safety measures, wearing of masks, reactions, any of that, that stuff's not going to be compensable, nor is it going to be covered by your workers' compensation coverage, right? Uh, general prophylactic measures, that's not a workers' comp exposure. That's not something to bring your carrier into. And the reason for that is just a normal safety measure that you're employing. Now, New Jersey does have a series of executive orders, which are completely crazy, and I'll talk about in a second. Uh, just a reminder, too, that sick workers also have um, avenues under other programs. Uh, New Jersey does have uh, paid sick leave, earned sick leave. Uh, they also have family leave insurance. All of those things can be used. Um, 
how about is it a workers comp claim if the employer is completely closed due to an executive order or can't carry on its business for example new jersey gyms are still requiring people to wear masks when they come to the gym and it's led to mass layoffs of people that work in gyms because who wants to go work out with a with a mask over their face a sweaty mask uh generally speaking nope uh, that's not a compensable loss even though it's related to an executive order and the coronavirus uh, uh panic um if they're not sick and work is voluntarily closed, again, not a workers' compensation case. Uh, what has changed is the jurisdictional standard of proof. And the jurisdictional standard is that for non-first responders, uh, they now get the benefit of the new law, which says that there is a rebuttable presumption that if an employee develops uh, symptoms of coronavirus or tests positive, that it is uh, causally related to work. So that uh, new presumption, that the, that the COVID-19 infection um, by a uh, essential employee is related, uh, that is in effect. We have not seen this led to a massive bump in workers' compensation cases. We have not seen this turn into a huge avalanche of claims. And the reason for that is most people below the age of 70 or so, and that's really the employees that we're seeing in the workforce, get coronavirus, they're sick for a couple of days, sometimes a couple of weeks, they generally come back to work. So we were not really seeing this turn into a cascade of cases. Um, how we're defending them, and this is very important. We need to know what that rebuttable presumption means. It doesn't mean that if someone gets sick, they automatically are entitled to workers' compensation benefits. Absolutely not. Uh, that is a rebuttable presumption. That really means that we can, A, challenge that they are actually an essential employee under one of the orders, and therefore entitled to a benefit under the act. And then we can also go after and uh, challenge that the presumption uh, can be challenged. And we could say, look, this person uh, was wearing protective devices. They were always wearing the mask. We kept them six feet apart. They were never in contact with anyone with COVID-19. They didn't uh, have to clean up or handle any infectious um, materials. Uh, we're going to look at the activity that they were performing in the workplace and say, is there any a possibility or potential for exposure? So we can still try to challenge that causal link. Uh, and I'm going to give you the example. Uh, what is this this presumption? Well, it's rebuttable. Okay, it's the presumption of innocence. It's it's just a legal standard. And in general, the way we're going to challenge this is just as I said, we're going to address whether or not uh, that the uh, person was actually exposed. We're going to uh, argue that there is no preponderance of evidence that shows that they were actually in contact. We're also going to point to those prophylactic measures. Okay, the mask wearing, the social distancing that the employer is doing, uh, and we're going to make sure that we can challenge that. So. Uh, Again, through executive order, nearly everybody in New Jersey has been, been determined to be an essential employee. Uh, of course, healthcare workers are going to be entitled to this presumption as well, and they're going to be really have an easier time in workers' compensation court demonstrating that they have an entitlement to this presumption. So, uh, what is a healthcare facility? Well, it, again, very broadly defined, it to be almost anything. Uh, in addition. Uh, public safety workers are entitled to this presumption. Uh, what does this presumption mean? It means that any uh, current member, employer, officer of a paid volunteer fire or police department, and there's a heck of a lot of them. Uh, again, by this point, they're all vaccinated, so we're not going to expect to see many more cases come in. But for those of you who are defending and disputing death claims, predominantly death cases, uh, we need to be just mindful of the fact that, again, those can be challenged. The next thing I'm going to talk about just briefly is that the essential uh, that the 
identity of an essential employee has always been defined by executive order. And specifically, there's been a series of executive orders, more than 200 of them in New Jersey uh, since coronavirus has, uh, was detected here, essentially saying basically everybody is uh, essential. Now, the crazy thing is uh, just last week in New Jersey's assembly, Assembly Bill A755, no, I'm sorry, A577, uh, was going to extend this emergency act and extend the governor's emergency powers forever. Uh, so that's something that's been uh, was put before the assembly. Allegedly, they had a deal worked out and they were going to vote on that on Thursday of last week, and that got pushed. I think some cooler heads prevailed and said, wait a second, do we want to give Governor Murphy, uh, who's proven himself to be a, 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 a lunatic, uh, uh, control over our entire state forever? And the answer has been so far, no. Again, that bill is still pending, but it would extend his emergency powers essentially forever. It's very open-ended. It just says essentially he would have the authority to open and close businesses, set business rules for throughout the state forever. It does look like that stalled out. We also have heard that the governor is going to relax the masking requirements and start to rescind some of the executive orders, particularly concerning things like social distancing. And that's going to be important because the employer wants to show that we're complying uh, with the basic rules. The most important executive order for employers to comply with is Executive Order 192, which, by the way, creates the uh, governor's secret police task force, uh, which also has the authority to come into any business and seeing if they're complying with social distancing and masking rules. Uh, regardless of this, when claims are met, we generally recommend disputing or controverting most coronavirus cases, even at this time. Uh, the best case is uh, by the time the case gets to court, the matter has been resolved, the person is better, or they're dead. And it's a dependency case. And you're going to want to have that in denied or disputed status anyway, so that you can raise all defenses. Generally speaking, uh, discovery should be served in these cases. We do think they're very dispensable, defensible, excuse me, particularly from the point of causal relationship. We've had good luck with that. So uh, if you've got cases, and particularly the death claims, those are the ones that still seem to be lingering around and still coming in, not a ton of them. Again, we have not seen an avalanche uh, of cases ever since they changed the uh, the law to create a presumption in favor of compensability, but they are out there and they are defensible. All right. Let's talk about uh, the next hot topic in New Jersey workers' compensation. And that's the fact that two weeks ago, New Jersey's uh, Supreme Court issued a decision on medicinal marijuana. Now, you've heard me talk about medicinal marijuana many times in New Jersey. We've had a number of lower court decisions. We've had both a uh, uh, trial level decisions and we've had appellate decisions. And this is now an appellate level decision, which says that medicinal marijuana does not have to be directly paid for by the employer, but if the claimant, if the petitioner is receiving medicinal marijuana, we now uh, have to reimburse them if that uh, uh, care has found to be necessary and curative and related to underlying workers' compensation cases. Again, we aren't going to see, I expect, a huge run out the door for people to get off of opiates and get into medicinal marijuana. Unfortunately, from the carrier's perspective, from the employer's perspective, medicinal marijuana is not... Uh, an efficient alternative yet to opiates in terms of cost. It is an efficient alternative to opiates in terms of all of the secondary effects that we see from long-term opiate use. So you may see uh, the use of uh, sort of concurrent medications go down when the person gets onto medicinal marijuana. As we know, opiates causes constipation. So we have a lot of claimants who are on opiates for a long period of time. They develop all sorts of bowel and digestive issues. And then they're on a, on a second set of 
uh, medications for that. You know, we're not going to expect to see that with medicinal marijuana. New Jersey, uh, medicinal marijuana has been uh, legal under the Compassionate uh, Use of Medical Marijuana Act for quite some time. Uh, it is also now recreationally uh, illegal. Of course, it is still illegal to sell it for recreational purposes. Uh, however, uh, I've heard that it's still possible that people can buy it on the street, apparently, but it is no longer a, a criminal activity. However, from the carrier perspective we've, and employer perspective, we've always been challenging having to pay for medicinal marijuana. And the reason for that is, the reason we've been challenging it is because under federal statute, it's still illegal to pay for it. Uh, certainly to use a check or use any bank funds to use it, that would potentially um, expose the employer or carrier to federal charges for aiding and abetting. So we don't want to get involved in that. Uh, however, the courts work around for this, and, and this is how it's done in New York as well, is to be able to require that the employer reimburse the claimant directly. Now, my understanding is, although the medicinal marijuana case has gone up to uh, New Jersey's highest court, it's been decided, uh, now employers will be expected to reimburse uh, petitioners for medicinal marijuana, again, where it is found to be curative and necessary and causal related. Uh, my understanding is that the parties to that case are actually taking it up even further, and they're going to try to go into the federal courts to dispute that they are responsible uh, for making payments for medicinal marijuana. So there's still a little bit to play out. I don't expect them to be successful in that. Uh, right now, the law in New Jersey is that employers and carriers are required to reimburse petitioners for causally related established medicinal marijuana. And that's not every case. Again, the petitioner is going to have to show that there's a reason that they're on medicinal marijuana, uh, that this is beneficial to them, and it's palliative, it's reducing their pain, it's increasing function. That's what we're really going to look to. All right, so uh, that's a little bit about medicinal marijuana and what's happening. Employee reimbursement now expressly approved. All right, let's just jump into my last topic. And again, this is a big change, and I just wanted to give everyone a little update on to how things are working in regards to medical provider claims. So medical provider claims, as you know, are about one out of every five New Jersey filings is a medical provider claim. If you are a big employer, if you are a big insurance carrier, you are deluged with these things. They are kind of an avalanche of them. There's a lot of them. Um, these are generally claims where the medical provider is saying, thanks for paying me for this medical service that I offered to your injured worker, but you didn't pay me enough, and I'm due even more because under New Jersey, where there is no fee schedule, I'm due this thing called usual and customary, which is, hey, whatever everybody else pays me, that's what you got to pay me. So unless the employer or carrier has a direct relationship, a contractual relationship with that medical provider, they're generally going to be making this argument that they're entitled to usual and customary. Um, there's also a six-year statute of limitations. Typically, we resolve these by paying pennies on the dollar. Uh, in an October 7, 2020 decision, there is now uh, 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 case law that says that in order for the Division of Workers' Compensation to hear these medical provider claims, they must have jurisdiction over the underlying claim. There must be something that ties it into a New Jersey workers' comp case. It is not enough that a workers' compensation claimant from another state comes in and gets treatment in New Jersey. That's not enough to establish jurisdiction for a medical provider claim. Or the fact that the claimant resides in New Jersey but, and they're getting treatment here, but they, the workers' compensation claim actually arises out of a New York workers' compensation loss or a Delaware workers' compensation loss or Pennsylvania or Connecticut. I'm just looking at all the states that kind of touch New Jersey. We, we have a lot of situations where people live in New Jersey, but they work in Connecticut. They live in New Jersey, they work in New York City, and then they bring, uh, um, they get medical treatment in New Jersey, and then the medical provider brings a claim demanding more payment than they would be entitled to under, for example, the New York medical fee schedule. 
And so these are a legion. There's a ton of these cases. Uh, the, there is now a bright letter law that says residency alone is insufficient. Treatment in the state alone is insufficient to create jurisdiction. And we've been wildly successful with getting medical provider claims dismissed under those circumstances. In my office, because we have a very large New York practice, we have just so many cases in which the claimant uh, has a New York workers' compensation case, but we're getting treatment in New Jersey. The New Jersey medical provider then brings a claim in New Jersey workers' comp court and says, hey, I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z because I'm a New Jersey doctor. And we've now been incredibly successful in getting those cases completely dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. So you really should see your caseload, your population of those medical provider claims involving extraterritorial or extra uh, jurisdictional um, contacts really going down to zero. We should really be getting them dismissed. After this appellate level decision came out, we went back and filed motions to dismiss in cases where they hadn't been filed and really pushed it. And we have seen them uh, get dismissed by workers' compensation law judges. So that's a really great way to reduce down your medical provider claims. All right. Those are the three things that I wanted to touch on today. Uh, they're new, they're interesting, and I thought it would make it a little more fun uh, to depart from our regularly scheduled topic to kind of talk about things that are new and what's emerging now. All right. I'm ready for some questions, and I hope we have a lot of great ones. So let's come on over here. All right, Jim asked me a question. All right, would failure to provide PPE to administrative staff in a hospital or nursing home setting during COVID open you up to a 1B claim related to an employee death? Could you cover 1B claims as a future topic? Seeing a lot of these allegations in New Jersey, is the plaintiff bar trying to overturn exclusive remedy? Okay, so what Jim's talking about here is uh, the employer's liability coverage, which is offered to employers under a normal standard workers' compensation uh, policy. And essentially that employer's liability coverage goes to say, for for, for example, uh, and I'm not gonna be able to quote it exactly because I just don't know it off the top of my head, but it says something like all other injuries not covered by the first part of this coverage, which is your workers' compensation coverage, uh, the employer is covered. And generally speaking, those employers' liability claims are very, very limited. And really, we don't see this as the right place for those employers' liability claims. If the person was harmed at work um, as a result of a work-related exposure or injury, and that would be COVID-19, absolutely, particularly where there's a presumption, we'd expect them to bring a normal workers' compensation claim. Uh, again, that would be denied or disputed in due course, and we would dispute whether it arose out of in the course of employment. If you win there, there's no 1B coverage, there's no 1B exposure. So generally speaking, that's how we're defending these cases, and we're not really uh, so worried about the 1B uh, issue here. Um, you would be worried about the 1B issue, for example, if the person was exposed to COVID-19 at work for whatever reason, uh, they bring the, the uh, injury or the illness home, and then their family member uh, is injured. Uh, you know, then, then you'd see like a 1B claim, or you'd see the claims against the employer under a general liability theory of exposure. Uh, but that's not workers' comp, and that's generally not going to come under these 1B. I really very rarely to have seen it. The second thing is failing to provide safety equipment in general uh, is, you know, not even important for the claimant to show in order to obtain a workers' compensation coverage. Uh, so for a claimant in a workers' compensation case to come in and say, I caught COVID-19 at work, and also, by the way, I wasn't afforded or provided with the appropriate PPE consistent with my position or my risks or my exposure, well, that's cute. But actually, the judge doesn't isn't going to care about what safety devices were or were not used. Um, 
it, you know, you might be getting into a situation where they're trying to allege there's some kind of intentional harm here, uh, sort of similar to where an employer is removing the safety guards from equipment or doing other things that can then vault the workers' compensation bar because you're really getting into this intentionality, really getting to this uh, uh, assurance that the employer really knew that there was a substantial certainty that they were going to cause a harm to their employee. We're really not going to see that in the in the workers' comp context. And so really, I don't see, I, I would see that being covered under uh, under the workers' compensation portion of the policy. I really don't see that getting into the EL portion of the policy at all. But, you know, Jim, uh, that's a great question. And, you know, it is a great topic, too. And you're suggesting a topic here that I think is a good, uh, useful future topic. You know, I do get a lot of questions in the course of a given month about 1B coverage, particularly where there's contribution to an actual tortfeasor who is different from the employer and then comes back and then seeks contribution and, you know, trying to get something from our EL policy, et cetera. That is something that we step into all the time and have to resolve. So, you know, that would be a really great uh, topic for the future. All right. Great question. Thank you very much for asking it. And maybe that's a great future topic. So maybe we'll get into that in the future. Uh, that's all I got for questions. If I didn't answer your question or you typed in, I just didn't see it. Hey, let me know. Give me a call after this. I'll be happy to answer. I only saw the one from Jim there. And uh, uh, I think we gave him the best answer we could. All right. Uh, we're going to be meeting up again next month. I hope everybody attends and uh, learns something. Uh, keep your questions coming in. As I see different things emerge in my emails or my text or phone calls, I try to bring them into these topics so I can share some of the standard questions I'm getting all the time with everybody else. Uh, have a great week, everybody, and I'll see you next month.